When uh, our kids were small, Amy watched uh, a few other kids along with them. And so we had six or seven little kids running around our house. And with small kids, one of the goal is, is to teach them, right? Uh, that's why God put little people with big people, because you're supposed to teach them. And so what she began to work on during one stretch of time was teaching them about strangers. And that is a, that is a very important thing to teach your kids, Right. And so she would tell them what to do and what to say and especially what not to do, right? Do not take anything from them. Do not go out of the yard if they ask you to. And for, uh, with fire-breathing passion, right, do not ever get in a car with a stranger, right? Anybody, are we tracking? Anybody been there with the kid? Okay. That was understandable, right? And so Amy went to great pains to explain that this wasn't only about strangers, but also for, it, was, it applied to anybody that wasn't a parent or a sibling or Amy, right? Okay. So she said, I don't care what they tell you. Even if they say they talk to your mom or dad and it's okay, don't go with them. And they would smile back like toddlers do and they would nod their little heads and then they would ask when snack time was. I mean, that's, that's what kids do, right? So Amy set up this little test. It was partly to teach them about what she was trying to get through to them, and it was partly to scare the living daylights out of them. Um, but she, she knew she needed a little test, and so she searched uh, the country for uh, a thuggish-type guy with a van. And we thought a thug with a van, you know, pulling up to our house and kind of coaxing our uh, children into the van might be a good test. And so we found a thug with a van. Here he is. <laughs> that's our children's minister, Paul. And that's the church van. And Paul and Amy arranged this little, little afternoon. And Paul wheeled up in the van. And he, uh, the kids were playing in the yard. And he went up to the kids and he said, Hey, I've got some, I'm going to take you out for some ice cream. If you'll just get in the van, we'll go get some ice cream. Now, now, right away, I mean, they are behind the eight ball, right? I mean, bribing a kid with, with ice cream, that's, that's below the belt, really. Uh, but that's what, that's what Paul did. And so they, they did extremely well. No, no, we can't go with you. We can't do that because we've been told if it's not a parent, if it's not Amy, you know, we can't do that. But then, and Paul kept, you know, they were doing real well, but Paul kept at it. And then he said the magic word. He said this. Oh, no. No, you can come with me because Amy said it was okay. Oh. Oh, Amy said it was okay. Well, I like ice cream. Let's go. And so they piled in the van and they went off. And uh, Paul, instead of taking them for ice cream, went around the block. And when he came back, there was Amy standing on the curb. And she was looking more like a prison warden than a babysitter at that, at that point. And uh, she and Paul both, um, lovingly, I'm sure, uh, sat these kids down and went through the drill of what they did and what they did wrong and what they should do next time. And I do believe that at the end of the day, they did get ice cream. So that's good, okay? But it was a little test. Now, when it comes to your spiritual life, how do you know who the bad guy is? If someone were to come to you and tell you something about Jesus that you're not sure whether it's the truth or not, how would you distinguish what is and isn't the truth? 
How would you know who the bad guy is? Bad guy is. How would you know who is telling you the right thing about Christ and who's just wanting to take you on a band ride, a spiritual band ride? I want you to turn to the book of Galatians, and that's where we're going to camp. Um, and this scenario is exactly what the Galatians were facing. Uh, this letter is written by Paul to a group of churches. It's the only letter that wasn't written to an individual church. Uh, it was written to a group of churches scattered over an area called Galatia. And Paul had established all of these churches in this area on his first missionary journey in Acts. You can find that in chapters 13 and 14 of the book of Acts. And uh, some of the towns that he went through uh, there are Iconia, Lister, and Derby. And he taught them about Jesus. And he laid a foundation for building a church, and then he moved on and built some other churches. And so you have uh, a new church that is established, Paul has established, and then he's moved on. And the problem is that then after Paul left, some teachers came who Paul will call agitators. They came in and they began to teach something different than what Paul taught. All right? They taught... That while Paul was well-intended, he, he really didn't teach you everything. And so we're here now, and there are no worries. We have the gospel the way it's really supposed to work. And the way it's really supposed to work is that you have to be a part of Abraham's family in order to be a part of God's family. And in order to be a part of Abraham's family, you have to be circumcised. And you have to obey the law with all of its truth and regulations and ceremonies. In other words, if you want to be a part of God's family... You have to become Jewish. Now, put yourself in those shoes. How do you respond? Paul says, all we need is Jesus. These people who probably we know and love and respect are telling us, no, you need Jesus and a whole lot more. Who do you believe? And the problem is that you're being asked to pick. Is the Apostle Paul right? Are the agitators right? And here's the key. There is no way you can make that choice correctly if you do not know the gospel. There's no way you can make that choice correctly if you do not know the gospel. And so Paul writes this letter. It's written so that the churches in Galatia and the people of those churches will know the gospel. It's probably the earliest letter to the churches that we possess. It's probably written about 49 AD. And it's a good thing because Christianity is at a crossroads here. Will it be as Jesus intended it to be or will it be hijacked by people with another agenda? And these Galatian churches need to be reminded of what the gospel is and also, maybe more importantly, what it is not. And that's what the Galatian book of Galatians will tell us. And so Paul writes... And there are two messages throughout this book. And if you understand these two messages as you read this book, it will make a lot of sense. First, Paul writes to defend his apostleship and his authority. In other words, these people who had come in, these agitators, were saying, oh, Paul didn't know what he was talking about. And Paul writes this book and and defends himself over and over. I am an apostle. I received the gospel directly from Jesus. And over and over, he will defend his authority to tell them what the true gospel is. So that's one message of the book of Galatians. The second message is this, and this is where we're going to camp out today. He lays out the true gospel. What is the true gospel and what is it not? 
And so, I want to tackle this issue of what knowing the gospel is, because you can't reject a false gospel if you don't know the real one. And I want to show you Paul's main thought about what the real gospel is, and hopefully in the future you'll be able to pick out the fake ones. So I want you to turn to Galatians chapter 1, we're in verses 3 and 4. We're going to throw that up on the screen. And Paul crams the whole gospel message into these two or three verses right here in his salutation. What is this message? What is the gospel? Let's read it. Read it together. Read it with me. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And then he tacks on a doxology to whom be the glory forever and all the people said. Amen. Yeah. What's the real gospel about? The real gospel, I want to key in on this little word, deliver. Who gave himself to deliver us from our sins. The real gospel is about a rescue. It's about a rescue. This word deliver, exereo, is used uh, a few other times in the book of Acts. It's used when, the, uh, when Stephen is making his speech. And he talks about God rescuing the people of Israel out of Egypt. It's used when Peter, uh, in Acts chapter 12, is in prison. And Peter tells the church later that the angel of the Lord came and rescued him from prison. That's what this word means. That's what it meant in biblical times. If we were to define it in our modern day, this is what it would be. I want you to watch. Sarge. John McLaughlin. Can you hear me? Yell or tap. Can you hear me? Are you sleeping? Sarge. Well. In hell? We're alive in hell. How about that, John? Fly. You try. I have pipe. Keep doing. Hello? Yeah. I don't see you. 
few things about this kind of rescue. Number one, it's unique. This rescue that Christ comes and performs for us. Um, I, I love that line, uh, you're our mission now. I think Jesus would say that. I think Jesus would say that to us because we are trapped underneath a rubble of sin, right? And he comes and he says, you are my mission now. And this rescue is, is unique Because no other founder of any religion does this. No other founder, no other religion jumps in and rescues us. If you look at all of them, Buddha and Confucius and Hinduism, they just say meditate on it. If you look at Muhammad, he'll say just pray about it. If you look at Judaism, they'll say mark your body so that God knows you're serious and only eat qualifying foods and then keep a long list of rules and regulations you've made up so that you won't even come close to to offending God, and then you'll be okay. And what all of these religions do is they say this, rescue yourself. Because that's what that is. Christianity is unique. The Judaism one is important because this is exactly what Paul is combating. These agitators, Paul will say, were perverting the gospel. They were turning it inside out. And they were telling the Galatians that they had to be circumcised to prove that they were in the club. They had to observe rules and days and ceremonies so that God would accept them. They had to earn their own way. Now, if a man is trapped in a collapsed building like we just saw, Does it make sense to throw him a manual on how to build a rudimentary backhoe so that he can save himself? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, that would be insidiously despicable. To yell down in that hole and say, you're on your own. Save yourself. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus comes and says, you're my mission. Here's the second thing. This rescue is because of sin. Go back to um, our main text, Sandy. And it says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. We could read that another way. Who gave himself on behalf of our sins. And it would be a legitimate translation. Jesus died because... uh, it was, his death wasn't primarily, okay, hear me say that, it wasn't primarily a display of love or an example of heroism. Is it those things? Absolutely. He loved us, and he is our hero. But first and foremost, Christ died. His, this rescue is because of our sin. There is a, a, a 
great connection between our sin and the state that we're in and what Christ had to do for us. He will explain it later on in the epistle uh, in chapter 3, verse 13. Paul says that Christ became a curse for us by hanging on the cross. He became a curse for us. This rescue had to be made because of our sin. Because of our sin. One commentator commentator says that those words are the very thunderclaps from heaven against all kinds of righteousness. That is, all forms of self-righteousness. Because once we have seen that Christ gave himself for our sins, we realize that we are sinners, unable to save ourselves. And we give up trusting in ourselves that we are righteous. Jesus died because of, but more importantly, on behalf of. And he is our substitute. Why? Not because we're seeking him. Not because we're dressing up on Sunday. Not because we have our tie all tied right. Not because we've memorized scripture. Not because we're tithing. Not because we're attending church every time the doors are open. But because of, what does the verse say? Who gave himself to deliver our sins from the present evil age according to the, everybody read it together. Will of God our Father. Why did Jesus come? Not because you're good enough, not because I'm good enough, not because we deserve it, not because we merited it, but because God willed it. This rescue is because of sin, and God wanted to deal with our sin. And the way to do that was to send his only son and die on the cross. So here's where we are. The only reason God would come after us is his grace. Not because we've chased after him, not because we've merited Merited it. And the only thing that is done, get this, the only thing that is done is Jesus. That's it. And our involvement in this rescue is passive. It's not active. You didn't and can't and won't ever clean yourself up for Jesus. It's Jesus that does that for you. Third, this rescue is from the present evil age. Now, when you think about this present evil age, that's what the text says, that he rescued us and delivered us from this present evil age. What runs through your mind? I don't need any uh, answers out loud, but, but think about this present evil age, what runs through your mind? Maybe a good way to think about it initially is, what's the opposite? Maybe the opposite of this present evil age is a future glorious age. And we would resonate with that. We would understand that. The future glorious age would be maybe heaven, right? The way it's supposed to work. The world is put back together and everything is working like God intended to work. And God is ruling unchallenged. Maybe that's the future glorious age. In the first century when Paul writes this, the Jewish people divided history into two ages. There was the present evil age. And then there was this future glorious age. And they understood that this, at this present time, 
The world is being run by evil and nations and people and just it's it's broken. It's it needs fixed. But in the future, God will rule unchallenged. And what Paul is able to do is he's able to stand in the middle and he's able to say, you know what? Because the future Messiah who was going to make that future age happen, because he's already come in the person of Jesus Christ, that future age is no longer future. It's now. And so the present evil age and the future glorious age are existing at the same time. They are running concurrently. And what Jesus has done, it rescued us out of the present evil age into the future, now current, glorious age. But the problem is that we still have this present evil age all around us. But we are rescued out of it. And so that's the tension that you feel in the Christian life all the time. You understand that Jesus has saved you. You understand that what he has done for you. You understand that you are made righteous and holy by his blood. And when God looks at you, he sees Jesus and not you. And yet, you're in this world that is evil. And there's always this tug and pull back to that world. And that is what you will have to endure until God comes, until Jesus comes back and the glorious future age actually starts. More importantly, what defines this present evil age? This present evil age, when you think of that, what, do you, what did you think of? Did you think of uh, things that happen in the darkness, things that happen in the shadows? Uh, my brain, I don't know why, goes to a guy with a hockey mask and a chainsaw, okay? <laughs> That's just how my brain works, I guess. Um, the present evil age. We, we want to gravitate immediately to rebellion. Rebellion. Where people are shaking their fist at God and saying, I'm going to live the way I want to live. And Paul will actually uh, give a list of these rebellious type uh, deeds in chapter 5. He'll say, uh, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality and idolatry and sorcery and enmity and strife. And he'll go on and on. But, although he gives three verses to that kind, that side of the present evil age, he will give three chapters to the exact opposite of that. What is the opposite of this rebellion? Well, the opposite of rebellion is resolve. The opposite of rebellion is when we as Christians stand up and say, you know what, God, I have this covered. I've gone to church. I sit in a pew every week. I tithe. I go to Sunday school. I don't get drunk on Friday and Saturday night. I have this covered, God. And I don't know that I need Jesus because I've got it covered. You see, it, you all end up in the same place. Whether you rebel against God and you say, I don't need you, God. I'm going to live the way I want. Or, I don't need you, God, because I've got it covered myself. And that's self-righteousness. And Paul devotes three chapters of this book to that. And that is just as evil as rebellion. And the trick is that most of you will leave here today and you won't buy that. I don't know about that. I, eh, I don't know. 
You mean doing righteous deeds is actually a part of the evil world? And I will say what Paul says. Yes, if you are trusting in your righteous deeds as your salvation. If you are trying to rescue yourself because of the good things that you've done, then Paul will actually say in this letter, what good was the cross? It doesn't matter because you're shoving it aside and you're trying to rescue yourself and it's foolish and you won't get anywhere. There is a guy named Charles Blondin and there's a famous story that tells of him. Uh, He's a guy, he's made it into a million sermons, okay? You've probably heard of this guy before. Uh, but he stretched a tightrope in the 1800s. He stretched a wire across the Niagara River, and he walked this wire, uh, tightrope style, um, for people for many, many years. I mean, that was his livelihood. They would come and see Niagara Falls, and then they would go just a little bit down uh, from the falls, and they would watch Charles Blondin walk on his tightrope. And here's a, here's a picture. Uh, that's a bad picture. Let's do a, do a close-up. There's Charles. And he was a showman, you know. And uh, he would do little tricks. He would go forwards and he would backwards. He had a bicycle that he would ride. Uh, he would take a little table and set it out in the middle of uh, the, the wire. And he would eat a meal on the table. And then he would, you know, and uh, it, it, it was written that people sometimes were so uh, just uh, taken aback because they were so scared for him that he might fall, that they literally made themselves sick. Okay. One thing that I had never heard about Charles Blondin is that he asked one time for a guy, a volunteer, to get on his shoulders and go across the tightrope. Now I had heard that that he had asked somebody to get in a wheelbarrow and you know wheel him across, and and I think he did that. But that's a much different deal. I mean, he's in a wheelbarrow. If you're Charles Blondin and the dude, you know, freaks out, you can, you know, just dump him off and, and you save yourself. I mean, that's, that's okay. But if a guy is on your back, that's a much different deal. If he freaks out halfway across, you're going down with him. And so Charles Blondin asked a guy to get on his shoulders and I don't know, this guy must not have been the sharpest tool in the drawer, you know, something like that. I don't know what the circumstances were, but he said yes. And uh, Charles Blondin made it all the way across with this guy on his back. Now, I want you to put yourself in that guy's shoes. You're there with your family enjoying Niagara Falls, and all of a sudden there's this guy down the road, and you pay your 50 cents to go see Charles Blondin, and he points at you, and he says, hey, you want to ride across the river? And for whatever reason, you are mentally deranged at the moment. You say, yeah, sure, that sounds fun. And you climb onto Charles Blondin's shoulders. And then, halfway across, you tap him on the shoulder. Well, you can't tap him on the shoulder, because that's where you're riding. So you tap him on the forehead. And he looks up at you and says, yeah, what do you need? He said, and you say, you know what? You, you've been doing a great job. Uh, I, th- I think that, that we're doing fine, but we're halfway across, and those last two steps were maybe a little shaky. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to get off your shoulders. I don't care what you do from here on, but I'm, I think I've figured this tightrope thing uh, out, and I'm going to walk the rest of the way. 
And if your family's on the bank and they hear you say that, what would they say? Hopefully, I don't know your family, maybe they would say, yeah, Joe, we don't need him. But maybe, I don't, I, hopefully, they would say, no, don't get off his shoulders. He's your only way across. That's exactly what Paul is telling the Galatians. You started in faith. You started on the shoulders of Jesus. And now halfway across, you're choosing to go back to something that is not going to save you. You're choosing to go back to your own works. You're choosing to bring all of that sin and pile it back up on top of yourself and try to unbury yourself. And it just won't work. The true gospel is a rescue. And if it's not a rescue, then we're climbing off the Savior's shoulders halfway through and relying on ourselves. And that's not the gospel. Paul will give it another word, actually. He will say that's slavery. Slavery is what you're going back to. I love Martin Luther's words in the preface to his commentary on Galatians. Um, If you read that, I I will admit, I I don't understand half of it, okay? Uh, Just because of the way he writes. But I do understand these few sentences. And I think you will too. When he comes to salvation, he says this. What? Have we then nothing to do? Read this with me. No, nothing. Let's do it again. What? Have we then nothing to do? No, nothing. Nothing, but only to accept of him who of God is made unto us our wisdom and our righteousness, our sanctification and redemption. In other words, Jesus. What? Have we then nothing to do? No, nothing, but only to accept Jesus who has made our wisdom and righteousness, our sanctification and redemption. I like what Tim Keller says. Also, the only way you can be a Christian is not by pointing to your qualifications, but by admitting that you have no qualifications, which is the only qualification until you admit you have no qualifications and are not qualified. That's great. That's great. You see, the gospel is this, that I am more sinful and flawed than I could ever dare believe, but because I'm in Christ, I am more accepted and loved than I could ever dare hope. That's the gospel. And here's a good test. What makes you right with God? What makes you right with God? What's the first answer that comes into your mind? Is it something that you have done? Or is it something that Jesus has done? Is it something that you do? Or is it something that has already been done for you in the person of Jesus? The gospel is, I receive grace from God and then I live up to it. The false gospel is that I live up to this standard and then God owes me grace. That's the false gospel. Does God love me first and then I love him back? That's the true gospel. Or do I love God and then try to earn his love for me? That's the false gospel. Does he accept me and then I live a good life? That's the true gospel. Or do I have to live a good life in order for him to accept me? That's the false gospel. I hope that you recognize the gospel a little better. All you need is nothing. The unfortunate problem, the unfortunate circumstance is that most people don't have it. Let's pray.
Father, I thank you that you have given us nothing. <laughs> that we don't need anything to qualify for salvation. I thank you so much for your son. And that he came when we were in that hole and when there was stuff piled on top of us because of our sin. We have put ourselves there. And we were, when we were in that state, Jesus came and he said, you're my mission now. And we're so thankful for that. Father, would you impress upon hearts here today how much you love them and how much they need rescued. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, I'm going to have you stand in a minute. Um, but what I want to talk about just, just for a minute is something that I know that there are people out there wrestling with. Because we will stand up here and preach, Kevin and I and whoever's preaching, and we will, we will rattle off a sermon like that. And we will say, there is nothing that you have to do. Nothing at all. And then, after we pray, the first thing out of our mouths is, now you need to believe. Now you need to repent. Now you need to confess. Now you need to be baptized. And I know some of you are hung up on that. And I want to make this little distinction because I think it's one that Martin Luther makes. I think it's right. Uh, would you throw that quote up there? He says, Have we then nothing to do, no nothing, but only to accept? There is something that we have to do. We have to participate. And the difference is qualification versus participation. We just went through uh, the uh, Olympics, right? And I guarantee... Uh, I don't have any first-hand example, but I guarantee there were people who qualified for the Olympics that did not end up participating in the Olympics. Maybe there was some circumstance, maybe a family member passed away, maybe they injured themselves. There were people that qualified that did not participate. In order to participate, they had to go to London. They had to get in the starting blocks. They had to run the race. It's the same thing with Christianity. You cannot do anything to qualify for salvation. But even in this letter, Paul says you absolutely have to do a couple things to participate. In chapter 3, he will say this. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Paul will say the two things... That you have to do to participate is to have faith in your Savior, to trust Him as He rescues you. And that happens in this event of baptism. And so I'm asking you today, would you like to participate? Would you stand? And if you would, you come. Let's sing.